It's June 11th, 1721, at the mouth of the River Gambia in West Africa. An English galley frigate called the Gambia Castle is anchored not far from James Island, where a new settlement for the Royal African Company is being constructed. The Gambia Castle is a slave ship sent here from London. Having first transported a company of soldiers here to man the fort, they were expected to collect their human cargo and sail for the West Indies. However, the 16-gun ship has been stuck in this godforsaken place for months now. The voyage has turned into a disaster. Company officials have failed to procure any enslaved people from the Gambian traders further upriver. Drastically short on funds, they now refuse to deliver food or fresh water to the Gambia castle. As a result, the crew's health is rapidly diminishing. At first, they grew tired and weak as dehydration and hunger set in. Then sailors started getting sick. Now, men writhe in agony, afflicted by malaria, yellow fever, or dysentery. They're slowly dying. Many among the 30-man crew fear they'll never leave here alive unless direct action is taken. One such man is the young second mate, George Lowther. Not yet 25, Lowther is already a highly experienced officer. Like the others, he has had enough. Today, the dispute that has been simmering between him and the ship's captain, Charles Russell, has reached boiling point. Lowther bursts into the captain's cabin, followed by a handful of fired-up supporters. Captain Russell is sitting behind his desk, discussing company business with his chief mate, Mr. Dudley. Both are startled by the intrusion. Striding towards his desk, Lowther slams his fist down and insists that Harris do his duty to his men. He must defy the orders of the Royal African Company and sail the Gambia Castle to a different location where the men can get the provisions they so desperately need. Captain Russell reminds Lowther that they have contractual obligations to the company, including the work that is still being carried out on Fort James. Lowther explodes. He grabs Russell by his collar and rages at him. If the company refuses to provide for the survival of the crew, then why should they care about a damn contract? Let us remind them that we are not slaves, he bellows. Outraged by the insolence of his second mate, Captain Russell accuses Lowther of attempting to provoke a mutiny. To demonstrate his authority, Russell orders that Lowther be brought before the mast, where he'll be tied up and whipped in front of the entire crew. But Russell has overestimated his power. Just as Dudley is tying Lowther to the mast, the larger part of the Gambia Castle's crew spring to his defense. Wielding ropes, chains, and iron bars as weapons, 
they encircle Dudley and demand he release Lowther. They then declare their allegiance to him. The captain is shocked. He reminds Lowther that there is a garrison of soldiers over on Fort James who will swiftly come to his assistance when notified. It's Russell's turn to rage. Surely you and your treacherous renegades aren't so arrogant to think you can overcome them. But unsettlingly for Russell, Lowther seems untroubled by the threat. He simply shrugs and turns away, giving a wry smile to his supporters. After passing an uneasy night on board amongst the mutineers, Russell slips away of first light. Leaving his chief mate behind, he takes a small boat and a few men and heads for the fort on James Island. Rowing furiously, he curses. He'll bring the entire garrison down on Lowther's head. Little does Russell know, his mutinous second mate has beaten him to it. George Lowther has a surprise waiting for him. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. By the mid-1720s, the golden age of Atlantic piracy is at an end. Everywhere, pirates have been hounded out of existence, with no port to sail to and enemies at every turn. It seems any crew still on the account is bound for disaster. Every captain faces certain death. Which is why we have left one story to last. The exceptional tale of George Lowther. At first glance, George Lowther could be dismissed as just another name featured in Charles Johnson's seminal 1724 book, A General History of the Pirates. That famous biography presents us with a man who first appears on the record leading the Gambia Castle mutiny. He then blazes a violent but successful trail as a pirate over the next two years. And his story 
like most of his contemporaries, inevitably hurtles towards a bloody conclusion. At least, that's the story that's been told up to now. For nearly 300 years, the tale of George Lowther has been told a certain way, with a certain ending. That story has become legend, and the legend has come to be taken as historical fact. But new research has revealed the hitherto unexplored story of one of the last great pirates of the 18th century. Like many pirates of the age, not much is known about Lowther's beginnings, but one historian breaking new ground is starting to fill in the gaps. Craig S. Chapman is a military historian, author of Disaster on the Spanish Main, and a forthcoming biography of George Lowther. Yes, he's from London, most likely Westminster. We know the first firm evidence we have of him is when he signs aboard a British warship in 1715. He signs aboard as an able seaman, not an ordinary seaman, which suggests that he had some experience, naval experience, maritime experience, before coming aboard the crew. We keep track of him for the uh, tour of duty of that ship, which, by the way, was captained by Edward Vernon. When the youthful George Lowther joins the crew of the HMS Assistance in 1715, he likely has already seen naval action during the recent war with Spain. Here he meets a man who will go on to play a decisive role throughout his life. 31-year-old Captain Edward Vernon is destined to become one of the most important men in the Royal Navy. He is known for his fashion sense and, in particular, for wearing distinctive coats made of grogram cloth, a thick and distinctive silk. Among the men, this has earned him the affectionate nickname Old Grog. In fact, the origin of the word grog for diluted rum is attributed to Vernon, as he was the officer who first introduced it into his naval squadron. He's an outstanding naval officer. You look through his correspondence, look through his logs, you can see here's a naval officer who really pays attention to detail. He's one of the few uh, naval captains who really showed some interest in the lives of his sailors. Much of his action is designed to improve their health and well-being. I've noted that uh, most of the Royal Navy captains had difficulty manning their ships, which caused them to resort to impressment to fuel up their crews. Uh, not so with Edward Vernon. He had more than enough volunteers to serve on his ships which is why I think Lowther ended up on HMS assistance, because somewhere along the way, we don't know where, they've run across each other, they know each other. Lowther picked Vernon's ship. The HMS assistance is sent north to help the Russia Tsardom in the Great Northern War, a conflict against the Swedish Empire. And among Vernon's crew, it is George Lowther who stands out the most. Later correspondence will show that Vernon considers young Lowther to be a good seaman and a gallant man, and the respect is mutual. Over the course of their voyage together, Lowther learns valuable leadership skills from old Grog, skills which will hold him in good stead. Lowther parts company with Captain Vernon and the Royal Navy in 1717. That means that historically there are four lost years before he reappears as a mutinous merchant officer on the Gambia Castle in 1721. Perhaps it's Vernon's influence, seeing how a ship could run and how a crew should be treated, 
that fuels Lauber's rage at the Royal Africa Company and his callous commander, Charles Russell. Or perhaps he's just a desperate man pushed to the brink. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. George Lowther was facing a lot of poor conditions on his ship. It was felt that the captain of the ship that they were all sailing with was cruel or ineffective, withholding wages. And because of this sort of dissatisfaction, Lowther, along with several others, decided to declare a mutiny and basically go ahead and take over the ship. In contrast to the lofty Captain Russell, Lowther is a warm-blooded, charismatic personality, easily capable of winning over the unhappy crew and persuading them to follow him into mutiny. Now, the crew also know that the longer you stay in Africa, the less likely you are to survive yourself. It's kind of a cruel fact, but in the course of a voyage from Britain to Africa to the West Indies back to Britain, the mortality rate amongst the sailors would be as high as the mortality rate of the slaves themselves on the Middle Passage. So it's pretty grim business. Lowther intends to exploit the dire situation to his own ends. He already has an idea of what their next steps should be. And right now, the sailors are prepared to do just about anything to survive. But he needs more hands to fully man the ship. It's fortunate, then, that their desperation is shared by the Royal Africa Company's soldiers they recently transported to Gambia. And their commander, Captain Lieutenant John Massey, now stationed at the fort on James Island, shares his concerns. At first glance, it's hard to see what the two men might have in common, other than their current plight. Unlike the rough-and-ready Lowther, Massey is a well-born gentleman from a respectable family. Still in his twenties, Massey has the connections to have secured himself a commission in the British Army. But during their time working alongside each other, they've become close. Lowther also sees that Massey has a wild side. From their first drunken conversations on the voyage over from England, he identified Massey as a rash and tempestuous man. Massey, he thinks, is someone who could be provoked into action when the time comes. He was a little bit wild in his youth, and then I guess his family kind of got fed up with him, and they got him a commission in the army, which straightens him out. He goes to the Low Countries during the War of the Spanish Succession, serves effectively, bravely, and comes out as a lieutenant. But peacetime doesn't agree with him. He, he gets bored, tired, whatever. Maybe a little bit of PTSD is what we would say now, and he, he falls back in old ways of getting drunk and carousing and, and the like. The family finally came up with this as a way of resurrecting his career. Like they have him uh, sent over to the uh, Royal Afghan Company when Colonel Whitney, who becomes the governor on this mission to the Gambia. It's early morning on June 12th, 1721, the day of the mutiny. Over on James Island, in the half-built fort upstream from where the Gambia Castle is anchored, the garrison commander, Captain Lieutenant John Massey, stands on the ramparts, closely studying the slaving vessel that carried them to Africa. Massey has around 40 soldiers left under his command. He left England with more. 
Since arriving in West Africa, their number has been decimated by disease and malnutrition due to the negligent governance of the Royal Africa Company. And like the crew of the Gambia Castle, Massey's troops are equally demoralized and in despair. They are keen to return to England, a fact which George Lowther means to exploit. Massey looks down on the men marching in drills on the dusty parade ground and feels sympathy and fury in equal measure. Some of these men came over on his advice, men he'd served with in Europe and in Ireland. He feels they've all been betrayed. As soon as Captain Russell arrives on the shore of James Island, he comes to Massey and demands his soldiers immediately be sent to retake his ship, arrest Lowther, and drag him back to the fort to be summarily executed. Massey shifts uneasily. Glancing back to his men, then back at the trembling merchant captain before him. The silence hangs heavy in the air. At that very moment, a soldier approaches Massey and hands a folded piece of paper to the garrison commander. A note. A message from George Lowther. The message tells Massey that it is high time to put their project in execution. Is the signal Massey has been waiting for. Time to act. Before Captain Russell knows what's happening, before the governor can intercede, John Massey issues his commands. He spreads the words among his troops. You that have a mind to go to England, now is your time. His troops descend on the storeroom to seize provisions. Shooting the lock open, they seize food, wine, and munitions. Next, Massey sends a diplomatic message to the governor, his friend, Colonel Whitney. He appeals for him to understand that their actions are necessary and politically justifiable. Knowing that Whitney has been suffering from a fever recently, he even asks if he would like to accompany them as they leave Gambia on their ship. Massey hopes that the governor will acquiesce to this request. If he does, it could legitimize their behavior. But the governor's reply is damning. He refuses to sanction these actions and communicates to Massey that if he absconds on the Gambia castle with George Lowther, the British government will consider them all outlaws. But Massey remains unfazed. He's a soldier, and he's committed to this action. He gives his men the same assurances that George Lowther has given him. It is the incompetent factors of the Royal African Company who will be answerable to law. They will all simply return to England, where they will all be found innocent. Massey and his troops take to their boats and head towards the Gambia Castle to join Lowther's crew. When Massey eventually boards the Gambia Castle, he expects to be hailed as its new commander. Although Lowther is a more experienced seaman, Massey is of course an officer and of a higher class. But the sailors, whilst pleased to see him and his men, don't seem to consider him their leader. He strides towards a crew member and asks where he can find Lowther. He is told that the captain is in his cabin, making himself at home. 
The leadership dynamic between Lauther and Massey was sort of a give and take. It was generally agreed that Lauther was in charge, but Massey was also technically the captain. So it was kind of like the power was going back and forth between them. People did recognize Massey as their captain, but people were turning to Lauther a lot more in terms of instructions or guidance, or basically even in some cases, direct orders. Once the stolen slave ship is back out on the Atlantic, Lauther convinces Massey they must modify it for faster sailing. He orders the carpenter to reinforce the hull and tear down structures on deck to reduce windage and drag. Massey needs no convincing about changing the ship's name. Deciding they want nothing more to do with Gambia, they restyle her the delivery. However, it is one of the last things the men do agree on. Lowther previously assured Massey that they would sail home for England, which is what Massey had told his troops. He now quickly realizes that Lowther intends on another course. The two captains clash. Massey is hurt by what he sees as deception. Lowther is stunned by Massey's naivety. Massey is under the illusion that they will all be granted some kind of royal pardon once the circumstances of their mutiny are explained to the British government. To put him right, Lowther summons the combined crew onto the deck. It is the greatest folly imaginable to think of returning to England, he bellows over the crash of waves, for all to hear. What they had already done could not be justified upon any pretense whatsoever, but we were looked upon in the eye of the law a capital offence. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Regardless of what Massey may have promised his soldiers back in Fort James, these men are now outlaws who will face execution if captured. Lowther announces that they have only one course of action ahead now. We must turn pirate! Many among the crew are glad to hear it. There's little chance of survival otherwise. And there's always the possibility of striking it rich. Some have even been pirates in former lives prior to working for the Royal African Company. Despite Massey's protestations, 
the crew draw up the pirate articles of agreement for everyone to sign. Almost unanimously, the men sign their word to comply with the code of conduct in return for an equal share of any plunder. John Massey remains steadfast. This wasn't why he decided to help George Lowther. Perhaps he's ashamed, or perhaps he just fears that the retribution will be terrible. But what other choice does he now have? How will they provision? Who will they trade with? In the following days, Massey reluctantly accepts that Lowther is right. If they are to survive at sea, they must turn to piracy. Relenting, Massey signs the articles, officially agreeing to abide by Captain Lowther's rules and to a share of the plunder. Lowther's coup is complete. He is the de facto commander of a heavily armed pirate ship fully stocked with veteran soldiers and experienced seamen. Massey, though still a captain by rank, watches on with apprehension as their newly embroidered black flag is hoisted aloft. Actually, the two of them looked at each other as co-leaders. Even Lowther treated Massey as a co-leader. But I think uh, Massey felt kind of useless as a leader because he had knew nothing about how to run a ship or be a pirate. And that's what they were all about. So I think he kind of felt, I'm not doing anything here except ruining my life and reputation. Now that they are officially pirates, they head west toward the traditional hunting grounds, the Caribbean. But Massey still harbors a hope of a reprieve, that at some future point, he can persuade the British government that he never truly became a pirate by choice. To this end, Massey takes to his cabin and puts pen to paper. On behalf of himself and Lowther, he writes a letter to the monarch, King George I, seeking a pardon for the events at James Island. In this letter, he stresses that they only acted as they did to preserve the lives of His Majesty's subjects. He praises Colonel Whitney's integrity, but charges the Royal African Company factors with corruption and tyranny. When Massey shows the letter to his fellow captain, Lowther seems unimpressed. He doubts that such fine words and legal loopholes will spare either of them from the noose if captured, especially considering what they're about to do next. In mid-July of 1721, the delivery attacks its first ship. A Boston-based brigantine called the Charles is sailing 80 leagues off the coast of Barbados. Having taken great care to select a suitable victim, Lowther knows that his crew are straining at the leash to attack. When they do, it is with tremendous force. And once victory is theirs, they discover that the brigantine is loaded with casks containing mackerel, sturgeon, and pickled oysters, a feast fit for a king compared to the hard tack and stagnant water they've been surviving on. But while his pirates busy themselves with looting the ship, John Massey approaches the captain and declares that, despite appearances, this is not actually a robbery. He has become convinced that he can legally claim that this was not an act of piracy at all, but instead a transaction. He also politely asks the captain to deliver a letter addressed to King George. 
which by the way is just a peculiar event. Imagine yourself as the poor captain of this brigantine out of Boston. You get captured by pirates for three days or so. You you get your ship looted. And by the way, we're not going to actually steal from you. We're we're actually going to just going to trade with you. So they offload all of his food, his provisions, his money, and uh, dump a bunch of iron bars and stuff that they had still had on the ship when it left Africa. <laughs> So yeah, all right, this is a financial transaction here, not piracy. Okay, you know, Captain's probably trying to stomach that. And then at the end of this, you know, piratical act, they hand him a letter that he's supposed to have delivered to the king. Uh, he must have just concluded they were nuts. George Lauver is delighted by the haul they have seized, especially with the casks of beer that he knows will keep his crew drunk and happy for months. Massey, too, seems pleased. Nobody got hurt, they made a good trade, and his letter is now en route to England. Lowther, quietly amused, goes along with Massey's version of events, happy to maintain the pretense if it keeps his co-captain happy. There's no question about it. It's something that Massey concocts. I'm sure Lowther and the crew were just thinking, all right, <laughs> we're looting these guys. If we offload some junk from the hold, maybe, okay, you can still make your claim that we're not really pirates and begging for a pardon from the king. So yeah, we'll kind of pamper you. you know, we'll go along with the charade. But yeah, it's outright piracy, no question about that. Over the following months, the delivery raids more ships, including a wealthy French sloop near Hispaniola. From this, the crew loots a generous supply of cocoa, brandy, and French wine. Lowther is turning out to be a calculating and effective leader. His goal isn't to rack up impressive naval victories, accumulate large fortunes, or declare a war against the world. His principal motivation is for his company of adventurers to stay at sea and stay alive. Maybe then get rich enough to retire somewhere. And with these modest gains, he has started to think that he might yet succeed where other pirates have failed. However, the partnership with Massey is already starting to strain. As the list of robberies grows, the reality bites. Although both Lauver and Massey possess excellent leadership qualities, their styles are incompatible. For one thing, Lauver seems to be developing a taste for brutality. He soon sees the quickest way to get what he wants is to terrify his victims. They were both very experienced and they were both pretty brave. They didn't really shy away from difficult situations or chances to fight or anything like that. They were both highly intelligent and they were both pretty good strategists. Now, the difference between them, though, is that Lauther was really brutal in his ministrations, whereas Massey, not so much. Lauther was the one who would be happy to beat their prisoners. John Massey, on the other hand, didn't really participate in those sorts of activities. So that was the big difference between the two. Equally, Lauther is growing impatient with what he sees as Massey's weakness when it comes to violence. As far as he is concerned, if they are going to be pirates, then a little blood is going to get spilt, whether Massey likes it or not. It's not long until the two leaders are arguing over every decision. When they cannot reach an agreement, they set the matter before the crew. Mostly, when the crew gathers to hear their captain's debate an idea, 
the majority side with Lowther. Gradually, the crew begins dividing into two separate factions. It's the middle of summer, 1721. Somewhere in the Caribbean Sea. The delivery has drawn up close to a small Jamaican trading ship. It is firing warning shots over their bow. Despite their recent differences, both Lowther and Massey agree that this vessel will be full of valuable rum bound for England, as well as being easy to overpower. The command to attack comes from both of them. The pirates can already taste the rum on their lips as they clamber on board and force the merchant crew to surrender their weapons. But Lowther wants more from this ship than just the cargo in its hold. He's also looking to swell the ranks of his own crew. Lining up their prisoners on the deck, Lowther announces to the Jamaican crew that they have just been granted a wonderful new career opportunity. If they too wish to enjoy a life of freedom and prosperity, a pirate's life, where they shall drink rum together rather than transport for someone else, then they are invited to sign his articles of agreement and join him on the delivery. There are riches to be had, he promises them. A few men step forward. You've made a good choice, Lowther congratulates them. But the rest remain steadfast in their refusal to become pirates. They know where piracy leads. They've seen the bodies hanging over the docks at Kingston. Lowther eyes them coldly, the charm and humour suddenly gone. You've made a bad one, mates. To the shock of many on board, Lowther orders that the Jamaican ship be sunk to the bottom of the sea, with the remaining prisoners still on board. John Massey is horrified by the command. He steps forward, defiant. He tells Lowther it will be an act of mass murder. As the pirate carpenters get to work drilling holes in the prize vessel's hull, Lowther just shrugs. He tells Massey that this is how they will evade a conviction for piracy. By leaving no witnesses. After all, dead men tell no tales. Horrified, Massey appeals to the crew to support him in preventing this atrocity. And to his surprise, a number of the pirates agree, expressing solidarity with the captured crew. On this occasion, George Lowther has misjudged the mood of his men. He hesitates over whether to stamp his authority and sink the ship, or respect the will of the company. Perhaps with a moment to reflect, he remembers his morals with regards to ill-treating sailors. In any case, he relents. Lowther strips the ship of her mast to slow her progress, but allows the traumatized prisoners to sail away. It was a close shave. But the conflict has settled one thing. The Lowther-Massey partnership is at an end. In early August, the delivery chases and captures another Caribbean trading sloop. But on this occasion, there's no talk of destroying it after the raid. Instead, 
Lowther and Massey come to an agreement. The two will part company before their relationship becomes even more fractious. Massey and the 13 crewmen still loyal to him will take the prize sloop for his own, along with their share of the plunder, about 20 pounds from the company chest, as well as some textiles and other goods. Before sailing off in separate directions, the two captains shake hands. Massey promises Lowther that he will continue practicing piracy, and therefore Lowther need never fear that he might betray him in any way. Lowther smiles in thanks and says that he's glad to hear it. Outwardly, he shows no indication that he doubts Massey's sincerity. With that, Lowther sails west as Massey heads south in the direction of Jamaica. But as soon as the two ships are out of each other's sight, Lowther gives his crew the order to come about on a new heading. When Massey departed, he was in the Windward Passage, bearing west. As soon as Massey was over the horizon, he turned right around and turned east. That tells me that he knew that uh, a Jamaican station ship was going to be looking for him, and he was vacating the area. Just as Lowther predicts, Massey does not continue his piracy career for long. Instead, they make a beeline for Jamaica. There, he and his companions immediately surrender to the governor, Sir Nicholas Laws. Massey tells Laws his version of the Gambian story, emphasizing that he had only ever acted to save British lives. He had always planned to make for England to give a good account of himself before a court. It was Lowther who made them all become pirates, Massey insists. The governor accepts his story. After all, Massey is an officer and a gentleman, and such men do not typically turn to piracy. For a short period, Massey is even sent out in another ship manned with soldiers to try and catch Lowther. But due to Lowther's canny change in direction, they come back empty-handed. After a short time in Jamaica, against Governor Laws' advice, Massey insists on returning to England to clear his name. He goes voluntarily back to Britain, despite the governor of Jamaica telling him it's a bad idea, turns himself in. He writes a letter to the Royal African Company letting him know that he's back in town. He welcomes a trial. He wants to be tried. So that would give him the opportunity to give his side of the story, which foolishly, everybody's trying to tell him, no, you're not going to help yourself. And clearly, it doesn't make any difference to the authorities that, you know, that he thought he had good reason for mutinying. Wasn't going to work. It is July 5th, 1723, at the Old Bailey Courthouse in London. John Massey has been back in England for over a year. For most of that time, he has been languishing inside Newgate Prison. After notifying the authorities of his return, he was arrested almost immediately. Despite the lack of any witnesses to corroborate his crimes, and no doubt to the shock of his family and friends, he repeatedly insists that he has been an accessory to piracy and wants to face justice. Now, a year later, with witnesses present, he finally gets his wish. He faces an admiralty court. He is charged with being in league with George Lowther when he took the Gambia Castle, the French sloop, and the Boston Brigantine. Among those present at his trial is Captain Charles Johnson, 
the great pirate chronicler who later includes Lowther's biography in his famous book. Johnson describes Massey's defense as being unusual, to say the least. Not only does Massey talk the court through each incident in incriminating detail, but somehow he admits to two further acts of piracy for which he wasn't even charged. When asked to enter a plea, Massey throws himself on the court's mercy. He pleads guilty. It's a shocking case that gets media attention. Massey's friends even protest on his behalf, saying they never knew him to do a rational action and that he was a poor, crazy, rattle-brained fellow. They claim he's insane and should be pardoned. The court is unmoved. Pardon the guy, please. You know, this guy doesn't, he shouldn't be hanged because he's just pathetic. But the authorities don't go along with that. They do hang him. While Massey is being condemned to death in London, George Lowther's pirating career in the Caribbean is going from strength to strength. Now unencumbered by his former partner, Lowther is free to practice his trade however he wishes. With this greater freedom, he makes new alliances that contrast sharply with his more delicate relationship with Massey. Among the up-and-comers who come to serve on Lowther's ship is Edward Lowe, one of the most shockingly cruel pirates of the age. And with lieutenants such as Ned, Lowther begins to demonstrate a savage ruthlessness that he had previously managed to contain. Next week on Real Pirates, George Lowther is heading toward a date with destiny and an entanglement with the Royal Navy off the coast of Venezuela. Washing up on a tropical island armed only with a pistol, as far as many historians are concerned, this is where Lowther will meet his doom. And yet, his remarkable story is only just beginning. Using recent historical research, we will tell the true story of George Lowther as it has never been told before. That's next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast, produced by McAllister Beckson, written by James Benmore, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.